America at a Crossroads is a weekly live webinar series that brings together journalists, scholars, thought leaders, and policymakers for discussions regarding the state of American democracy, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. The series was jointly founded by Jews United for Democracy and Justice and Community Advocates, Inc. To register for our live webinars, join our email list at JewsUnitedForDemocracy.org. And now, please welcome tonight's moderator, Warren Olney. Warren has spent decades in TV in TV and radio journalism. He was the host and executive producer of the nationally syndicated public radio uh, uh, international weekday program, To the Point, which some of you may know from it having been broadcast in newer jurisdictions. Uh, it aired for almost 20 years, and for almost as long, Warren hosted our local LA affiliate LA NPR's affiliate KCRW, their local public affairs show, Which Way LA. He has won umpteen awards and most notably a Lifetime Achievement Award conferred at the Golden Mike Awards ceremony held by the Radio and Television News Association of Southern California. He's a terrific interviewer and a great person. Uh, please welcome Warren Only. Warren? Thank you, Dennis. That's very kind. I much, I much appreciate that uh, introduction, and I really appreciate the opportunity to introduce myself and Applebaum and to uh, talk with her as well. Uh, she, of course, uh, is also uh, she has been is a much decorated person, a historian, a well known also for writing about the challenges of democracy around the world as well as here in this uh, country. We certainly have plenty of our own. Uh, her book, Gulag, about the Soviet concentration camps, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2017. Another book, Red Famine, about Joseph Stalin's war on Ukraine. Uh, 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 Vladimir Putin isn't doing anything original. Uh, and other books are also very highly uh, regarded as well. Uh, her latest is Twilight of Democracy, the Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, which she discussed last year with Larry Diamond here on America at a Crossroads. She is a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and at the Agora Institute. She is a board member of the National Endowment for Democracy. She's currently a staff writer at The Atlantic. She's formerly a columnist and editorial board member at The Washington Post. She's worked for publications in Europe as well. She was born in the United States. She is a naturalized citizen of Poland. And she's speaking to us tonight from Washington, D.C. And Anne Applebaum, and my pleasure, pleasure and privilege to introduce you. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here again. Glad to have you. I just want to say to the audience, uh, don't forget that you can ask questions on chat and uh, I will be able to see those. And uh, later on in the program or at some point along the way, uh, I'll try to get to them. Uh, you get to ask questions, too. So um, we've been asked to uh, talk about a world at war, and this certainly is a world at war. It's hard to know uh, which one to talk about first. But uh, I think the one that uh, is getting less attention than it has, although very today, particularly, and in the last few days, because of uh, President Zelensky coming to the United States, the war in Ukraine uh, has been getting an enormous amount of attention. Uh, given all the wars that we are faced with, uh, including the one in the Middle East, how important is the war in Ukraine? So the importance of the war in Ukraine <laughs> really can't be uh, overstated. So the, the war in Ukraine will determine how the leading autocracies, Russia and China, but also Iran, uh, North Korea and others, perceive the Western world and perceive 
um, you know, the 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 the, the American led coalition um, that has that has been put together to fight Russia in Ukraine, uh, or to help the Ukrainians fight Russia, I should say. Um, you know, remember that Putin's goal in Ukraine has never changed. So the goal at the beginning of the war was to take Kiev and to make Ukraine into a whether a kind of satrapy or an occupied territory, but in any case, a part of Russia. Um, he And he, he very arrogantly believed that he could do that easily. And he imagined that he would take Kiev in a few days and the rest of the country in a few weeks. That was his plan. Um, that failed. Um, you know, and, and not only that, he, you know, over the over the subsequent year, he had to retreat. They retreated first from um, territory they'd taken near Kiev, then they eventually retreated from Kharkiv and, and other areas in the south. Um, but the Russians did not drop their goal and they didn't change their intention. And their intention is to conquer, as I said, conquer all of Ukraine, make it Russian, remove it as a state or at least remove its identity um, and, 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 you know, and, and make essentially make Russia into a superpower because that would make, that would give Russia, you know, a long border with, um, with EU states. Um, it would give it, uh, you know, new territories that would be, uh, you know, new businesses and companies and resources that would be nationalized and taken over by Russians stolen from Ukrainians. That's what happened again in, in territories that Russia's occupied in the past. Um, were they would they were they to succeed? In other words, were they to fulfill their original mission? Were we to stop aiding Ukraine and were, were Ukraine to collapse? Um, what would that look like? There would be not just two or three million, but I don't know, eight, 10 million more Ukrainian refugees in Europe. There would be the imposition of a totalitarian rule all over Ukraine, just like there is in occupied territories now. So, with concentration camps, with mass murders, with um, you know the you know arrests of civilians and the arrests of all existing politicians. You know, Zelensky would be arrested or murdered, or, or he would escape. Um, you know, there would be there would then be a the, the Russians would then, as I said, they would take over the businesses, they would take over the resources. Um, they would use it to rebuild their army and restructure it, um, and then they would keep going. Um, and the example of that success, the smashing of the Western alliance, um, forcing the West to accept you know, the, uh, the destruction of all kinds of rules and laws about human rights and about conventions on genocide and, 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 you know, and everything else, that, that, would then be, that would then mean that all of those rules, all those Western ideas were finished. Um, the inspiration, there would be an enormous amount of inspiration for China. Um, the Chinese are watching this war very closely. Um, they are, they also are wondering whether the Western coalition will break up. And if it does, that will give them extra incentive to invade Taiwan or, 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 or others. Um, you know, the Iranians are also watching it. The Iranians are helping the Russians openly. Their uh, Iranian drones are being used uh, directly in the war. Um, they're also watching to see whether there is such a thing as a Western coalition and whether they will stick by Ukraine. So it is of paramount importance, is very important. Um, and the, the, you know, lose, you know, the, there's, there's this kind of idea around in Washington and other capitals that, well, you know, if we stop helping Ukraine, well, then the war will somehow go away. No, <laughs> the war will not go away. It will get worse. Um, it will become more bloody. Um, the conflict will become um, more brutal, and the result will be that we need far more spending, and we need far more uh, weapons. And Europe, you know, will be in you know 
Poland, Romania, the Baltic states will also be in imminent danger of attack. So the likelihood of war spreading increases. So not helping Ukraine doesn't stop the war. It it makes the possibility of violence greater. So that I mean that to me is why it's so important. Republicans so far have been reluctant to vote in favor of more assistance to Ukraine. Uh, they sometimes say that rather than dealing with Ukraine's security, they're much more concerned with American security. You're saying that the war in Ukraine is a question of American security. Oh, absolutely. It's about American security. And it will. And the result of the war in Ukraine will have you know, all kinds of repercussions everywhere. Um, you know, what the what the Republicans say and what is actually happening are, is, is a little bit different. So, I mean, one of the strange things about the current moment is there's actually a majority in favor of Ukraine, both in the Senate and in the House. I mean, you would, you know, if you three quarters of both chambers would vote for to give money to Ukraine. Um, what's happened, though, is that because the House has is now controlled by um, the, the sort of how whatever you want to describe them, the the pro-Trump or pro-Russian or you know MAGA Republicans, um, they see they they see this mostly very uh, in a kind of transactional way, and they say, all right, this is something Biden really wants. Um, you know, a Ukrainian victory would be good for Biden. Um, therefore, we're against it. I mean, so some I think some of it is just partisanship. You know, we if if Biden likes this, then we don't. I mean, I I think it's literally that. Um, I think secondarily. Um, the the border is an important issue for them. Um, it's a it's a central piece of their their message. You know, the country's out of control, the country's in chaos, um, and the border is is evidence of the chaos. And so, you know, their their you know their second idea is okay. We can get some big concession, not just on funding for the border. I think that was Biden's original idea that he could give some more money for I don't know asylum processing or border control. But they want more than that. They want some kind of policy change about the asylum regime. Um, it's unclear to me now. I've actually talked to a lot of people over the last few days what it is exactly that they want, and they're not really saying. They, um, you know, it's almost, and it's not even clear to me whether they want something real or they want some kind of performance. You know that, you know, Biden has to make some big concession, and you know there has to be some big deal, and then they win something. And you know, I, I'm not sure. Um, but they want they want to they want to make that part of the part part of the bill. I mean, some of them may genuinely believe this thing about you know our security first and Ukrainian second. But you know the border is not really a security issue. I mean, it has security aspects to it, but it's a it's more complicated than that. It's not about um, you know America is not imminently in danger of losing its prominence in the world because of. You know, because there are too many asylum seekers at the border, which is which is which is what the nature of the problem. Um, so it's so you know, so to some degree, the Republican objection is disingenuous. There are, and I should say, there are real conversations going on. There are very apparently very detailed negotiations. You know, they're between the leading several. Chris Murphy, I think, is the one of the leaders on the on the Democratic side. Um, Langford on the on the on the Republican side. Um, there is a real negotiation. There's a real argument. And some people who um, are you know, very close to the inside believe that there will be a deal. And it might not be before Christmas, but they're, they're all due to go on, on um, uh, you know, Christmas vacation next week. It might be in January. Um, and I, you know, I think that's it's unfortunate because I'm told that the effect of, um, you know, the effect of there being 
less ammunition and less weapons is already being felt on the ground. So there's some impact already from from this failure. Remember this this is a this is an argument that's dragged on now for several months. Um, it goes back to the summer. Um, you know, there is a school of thought that says, you know, Biden should never have split this off from the rest of the budget, which is what, you know, I don't know how how closely this audience follows these things. But there was a there was an earlier moment when maybe it could have passed as part of the budget. And then as a, as a concession to Kevin McCarthy, it was split off and with McCarthy agreeing to do it later. And that's somewhat somehow this got caught up in the political process in a way that it hadn't before. Um, and maybe that was maybe the Democrats made some mistakes there as well. Um, but there, you know, as I said, the irony is there's a majority for help for Ukraine. It's not true that people have lost sight of it or forgotten about it. Um, it's just that there, you know, in order to get some form of bill through the Senate and through the House and to get the new House Speaker to put it on the floor, it's felt there needs to be some big change in in asylum policy. Um, and asylum policy is a very difficult, you know, sphere of <laughs> sphere of politics. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah, as you mentioned, and, and the demand that this somehow be associated with asylum policy uh, has a real impact uh, on the Democratic coalition uh, already. Just because the president has said he might be interested in doing something, uh, I, I don't think he's been in detail about it at all. Uh, California Democrats, including the Senator Alex Padilla and the one or two of the uh, uh, congressmen who are Congress members who are Latinos, have said, wait a minute, you know, we don't want to do that. And uh, that, not that that uh, endangers their vote for uh, Ukrainian money, uh, but it does make them nervous about the president and uh, give them an opportunity to when, when he's trying to run for the election. It, so it is also possible that one of the purposes of this is to split the Democratic coalition. Yeah. I mean, and, and the, Demo the Democratic Party, like the Republican Party, and really like all political parties, is also a coalition. There are people sure. who have a range of views. Um, and maybe the purpose is to, you know, force something that would be unacceptable to a part of the party. And that no. is also that's also a possible explanation for what they're doing. You mentioned the international coalition that is behind um, the uh, uh, Ukraine. And the president said today that I think the United States has contributed to $75 billion dollars since the war began, and he said that uh, others, I'm not, I'm not sure who he meant, had contributed $100 billion in total. Uh, so the United States is not the dominant, well, it is the dominant party, obviously, $75 billion is a lot of money, uh, but uh, others have contributed more. How important is that to, well, how important is that? Let me just Ask a question. So it's very important. I mean, the um, and the the uh, it's it's the European contribution that is um, that I think he he was talking about. So yes, I think there, that's right. Yeah, there's a very large European um, financial contribution to you know just to, to to keeping the Ukrainian budget going and 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 you know weapons as well. I mean, it is the U.S. that's providing the bulk of the weaponry, and that's because the U.S. has more of it and had more of it in warehouses. Um, that wasn't being used uh, than 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 Europe had, and I should also say that more than eighty percent of the money that the U.S. has spent on so-called so on Ukraine is actually spent on weapons that are made in the United States. So, and some of them were already you know already available. So it is it is um, you know it's money spent in the U.S. It's you know that goes to U.S. manufacturers and is spent in states like you know Alabama and. 
um, upstate New York and, you know, where, where the big companies are. So it's not like we're sending, you know, suitcases with dollar bills to Kiev. That's not how it works. Um, and the and the other part of the coalition, you know, Europe, mostly Europeans, also Canadians, I guess, and a few other, and Australians and a few others, South Koreans, um, has has done has has paid more in, you know, kind of cash and financial costs to the war. Uh, you've obviously uh, spent a lot of time talking about what's going on on the Hill. Uh, are you surprised by the Republicans in the Senate, uh, not just uh, Lindsey Graham, who has been very outspoken about this, but also uh, about uh, the the uh, leader of the minority in the Senate? Um, McConnell, Mitt, McConnell you know, yeah. Mitt, yeah, you know, Mitt Romney, who's who's been very clear about Ukraine um, and yeah. has been speaking about it in the last few days. Um, yeah, I do find it, I, you know, I, I find it shocking that they have agreed to this. On the other hand, as I understand it, one of the reasons they're doing it is to make sure there is a package that will pass the house. So they're, you know, they, they, they need something, some language in this bill to be somehow acceptable enough to Mike Johnson so that he'll, you know, agree to vote on it. And so some of this is that it's not just that they're, you know, playing domestic politics, although they are. Um, But, but in addition to that, they are, you know, they they need it. They need because it, it, ultimately the House has to vote on it, um, and so they're they're waiting for that. And remember, by the way, and it's interesting for this audience. In addition to this, to the Ukraine money in this package, it's also got money for Israel. That's right. Um, and so this isn't just about Ukraine; it's about money for Israel, and there's some money for Taiwan as well. Um, so this is a this is a defense and security package. It's you know directly. It's very important to Israel as well. Um, and the fact that you know. It, it's being held up. I mean, I think it's proof of really how far down the road of obstructionism and partisanship the Republicans have gone. Because even Israel, which has been a bipartisan, um, you know, issue for for many years, in which many Republicans support Israel, they even support you know Netanyahu. Um, nevertheless, they're holding up this as well. So I think that shows you just how strong the partisanship is. What about this uh, question of delay? You said that it might take until January to do something, presumably presumably uh, something ultimately will happen. Um, What's the situation militarily and how much longer uh, can Ukraine wait to get the kind of support that it needs from the United States? Here's Zelensky himself coming over here and uh, being on Capitol Hill in a very public way. Um, Is there a deadline of some kind with regard to the military situation in Ukraine? know that there's a you know I know that the so some of the part of the US package is this is is financial funding that to to support the Ukrainian budget and I know that that's already a problem that they're beginning to be um you know questions about will they be able to pay soldiers and pay you know they're 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 that's going to happen quite quickly the military question I don't I don't know because I think it's a little subjective I mean, clearly, if the Ukrainians have less ammunition and less weapons, they're not going to be on the offensive. They're not going to be taking back territory. They may be able to defend what they have, um, you know, or de- you know, defend the current border. The Russians are, are attacking actually right now quite aggressively in the north, I mean, the east. Um, but but they, you know, they may be able to hang on. And and you know, I think one of the issues is that if you know you have less ammunition, you fight differently. Um, you know, they will. They will they will be much more conservative. They will be more careful. Um, you know they're they're not going to you know they'll they'll simply you know go completely on the defensive. 
Um, and that's, you know, that's fine. But, um, you know, should the Russians have a breakthrough or should there be a, you know, a moment of weakness, you know, then, then you know, there, there could be a kind of domino effect. But I don't, I don't know that I can tell you, you know, if they don't have it by January the 7th, you know, X will happen. It doesn't really work like that. Are there differences in terms of strategy between what the Ukrainians are doing and uh, what the Americans military thinks they ought to be doing? We're sending people over there. There's a lot of training of Ukrainian troops. Uh, sometimes uh, it's reported that they're not being trained in the right way or for the wrong things. Uh, there, that, there, and- there are disagreements. I mean, there were a lot of expectations that the Ukrainians would be able to make more progress forward over the summer. Um, and, but, it's, but the Russian defenses were more elaborate than were expected there the you know the thousands and thousands of mines um which are very difficult and the combination of mines and drones and this this is apparently what the training didn't account for so if you break through a minefield if you clear some mines out of the way you know the idea in you know in in you know the military tactic is that you would clear the way and then you would have your you know your your tanks and your other armored vehicles would go through but if you break through the, the line and there's a drone right there that sees you um, immediately as soon as you do it and can then, you know, and you can then target that spot with your artillery, it makes a breakthrough very difficult. So we're one of the things that's happened with this war is that the way it's being fought is already very different from wars of the past. I mean, the, a war of this scale with this number and quality of drones um, you know, is 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 simply a different kind of war than I think even one that the U.S. has ever fought. Um, you know, if you think about it, everything is visible at all times. There are no secrets. You know, everybody can see everybody else. The whole battlefield is visible, um, and to both sides. So it's not as if it's not as in you know Afghanistan where the U.S. had much better technology than the Taliban. Or you know, here everybody sees everything, uh, and. That means that the way of means of fighting is different. I mean, there's a, you know, maybe not for tonight. I mean, there's a longer conversation about how to break that. And the Ukrainians are beginning to talk about how to change drone technology and what kind of electronic warfare they'd have to use to, you know, take down and undermine Russian drones. Um, but but the, the idea that you could just train, you know, tank brigades and that that would be enough turned out to be wrong. I mean, there are a lot of there's a long and involved argument about what what why the Ukrainians didn't have a bigger breakthrough over the summer. Um, there are, you know, there's, you know, some Americans wanted them to go all in one place. The Ukrainians thought that was too dangerous. They didn't want to have all their troops in one place. I mean, and who knows really who's right. I mean, I think two, a couple of things are clear. One is that the drones are a game, game changer. And the second is that the, the Ukrainians didn't have enough equipment fast enough. You know, they had a big breakthrough a year a year ago in in Kharkiv and then Kherson. Had they had at that time enough equipment to keep going, you know, the war might be over by now. But they didn't. You know, we we gave them things very slowly on this kind of slow drip. Um, you know, uh, you know, action, and we we also didn't give them long range weapons that which had turned out to be very important for them to hit behind the lines. And, you know, we didn't give them those fast enough. And that's, it. that's, you know, sorry to be talking about military tactics. It's important because I asked you about military tactics. That's I know, okay. but it's important. It's also important because it's part of the politics of the war. Yeah, sure. You know, that, that Biden, um, you know, fair, fairly enough, I think at the beginning of the war said, you know, there, there are few, you know, we don't want um, American troops involved. 
Um, and we don't want this to escalate into a kind of NATO-Russia war, you know. And so a lot of the aid for Ukraine in the beginning was, you know, in retrospect, overcautious, um, you know, because as it turns out, Russia probably doesn't want a NATO-Russia war either. And Russia is is not making strides in the direction of using nuclear weapons. It's, it's a, that was all been kind of bluff. Um, and so maybe had we armed them faster and had things happen more quickly, we might be further along. But the the thinking of the administration was, you know, that we were building up slowly to, you know, to continually test red lines and and see who is ready. But, you know, I mean, the tragedy is that, you know, you know, were the war over by now, um, we'd already be in a different world. And had, you know, had, had they been able to take back more territory faster, it might be. I mean, I don't think, you know, Ukrainians are not losing in that, you know, they've still taken back half the territory Russia took. They've blocked Russian access to the Black Sea, which is kind of amazing. They don't have a navy, and yet they've used their amazing, amazing sea drones, these navy drones, uh, you know, water drones, um, to take out enough Russian ships that the Russian fleet has moved away from Crimea, away from Ukraine. Um, so they have had a number of really remarkable successes. You know, they are not giving up lots of territory right now. It's just that what feels perilous now is the idea that the coalition, which was so important for them militarily and economically and financially, but also psychologically, seems to be breaking up. How is it breaking up? Uh, you mean because of the Republicans in Congress? Or, yeah, I mean, they... the U.S. money. There's a there's another separate problem in Europe, which is that the Hungarian leader, Viktor Orban, was blocking. Yeah. I think that just today that may have been resolved, but um, uh, you know, the, the, the European Union is going to concede something else to him, too. He, well, he was also using it as a kind of bribe. Um, but, you know, I think the point is that it felt for the first year, year and a half, that the war in Ukraine was not ordinary politics. I mean, it was something that was uniting people. It brought people together, actually, on the left and the right, and in in the in the U.S. Uh, it brought together, you know, Europe and America. It, and it felt like a you know something that was above and beyond ordinary politics. And what's happened now is that ordinary politics have returned. And as I said, the Republicans think they can use this as a kind of bribe to get something else. You know, they think maybe if they don't do it, it will hurt Biden. You know, so there's a there's a, there's a different set of considerations now other than national security. Okay, there doesn't seem to be a deadline for providing more money, but supposing that uh, it doesn't get there soon enough, and, and it, it, would would Russia be able to uh, immediately take over uh, Ukraine and and uh, uh, annex it or whatever the uh, I, I process would be? I don't know how be? immediate it would be, but that's that remains their goal. I mean, this is another piece of the story that is. I think people are confused by, um, you know, lots of people say, well, can't Ukraine give up some of its territory and negotiate? No. Um, I think maybe there are some Ukrainians who would do that. But the, the trouble is that, you know, you have to have someone to negotiate with, you know, there has to be a, a partner. <laughs> so, so, so we could put lots of pressure on the Ukrainians and they could negotiate, but there needs to be someone on the other side who wants to stop fighting. And right now there is no evidence that Putin wants to stop fighting. And so the war isn't over until he stops fighting and he has to, you know, there has to be some kind of political change in Russia, by which I don't mean regime change, but there has to be a, a political change and the Russians have to conclude that it's not worth it to continue fighting the war. And we have, and the, the hope was that, you know, a Ukrainian counteroffensive would push the Russians in that direction. 
Um, but instead, you know, instead we have this kind of vision of dysfunction in Washington, which actually encourages the Russian to keep going. I mean, that's another effect of what the Republicans are doing is that it's part of, you know, what reinforces Putin's desire to stay in the war. And if he were convinced that we're really going to be there and we're going to step up our aid and we aren't flinching and, you know, the war is going to go on, you know, until it ends um, and we'll help Ukraine until it ends, then I think his attitude might be different to, than to the one he has now. President Biden has made much of the fact that uh, some rep- the Russian propaganda uh, organization uh, said openly that uh, congratulations to the Republicans in, in Washington. What they're doing is really good for us. And the president has emphasized that a lot. Um, so it, it sort of strengthens your point that you're making, it sounds to me. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean there's no question that they're, I mean, they, they watch our politics incredibly closely. They, you know, they when every time Tucker Carlson comes out with another program attacking Ukraine, which he does periodically, yeah. they, they repeat it on Russian television. Um, you know, they fought, they've been, you know, re- telling the story very closely in great detail about the, you know, you know, the Republicans insistence on including the border aid and so on. And they they cover that, you know, and that's giving them the feeling that, OK, we can stay in the war until we win. You know, if it was if there was a if there was solid American support for Ukraine and if we were sending more and more weapons, then there would become sooner or later, there would be a moment when they would start to flag. Uh, you mentioned Tucker Carlson. I can't help but pointing out that you also mentioned uh, Orban in uh, Hungary and uh, Tucker Carlson has been very supportive of Orban, went over there, did a program with uh, Orban and uh, has, has uh, often uh, spoken about him. Why is that important? Why does it matter? So Orban is um, is a is a kind of small d dictator. So he's an he's a an illiberal politician who has fixed the voting system and fixed the state media and kind of captured the state, captured the economy in Hungary, um, and so he can't lose an election. It, you know you can't defeat him because the it's the system is you know genuinely rigged. Um, he's also quite profoundly now pro-Russian in a sort of organic way. Um, He's had, there's some big Russian investments in Hungary. Um, They're very opaque. Um, There's a a nuclear power plant, which, um, you know, nobody's ever seen the contracts that were were written to build it. It's assumed that the function of those investments is to, uh, you know, so that bribes and payments are given to the the Hungarian ruling party, to Orban's party, you know, um, and that it has some corrupt function. In the Hungarians, yeah, I should say there are big Chinese investments in Hungary too, which have the same, possibly the same impact. Um, and you know what's pretty clear is that Carlson is part of a group of American politicians who, oh, actually, including Ron DeSantis as well, who admire Orban, um, and they seek to imitate him. I mean, they they admire him for you know taking control of his country. They admire him for you know, destroying the opposition. They admire him for capturing the media Um, to, you know, to them, those are all positive qualities. And so, and so he's become a kind of model for the proto authoritarian Republican right. Um, He also does, there's another important aspect of of Orban, which is um, also relevant to this, which is that he you know, Orban is a, you know, what he's created is a profoundly corrupt state where sort of his party controls everything, including, as I said, the economy and, you know, the money cycles back to them. And so it's a form of kind of, as I said, elite state capture. Um, but he never, he doesn't ever talk about himself or his 
government that way and said he talks almost exclusively using this language of culture war. You know, Hungary is defending Christianity against Islam or against, you know, implied sometimes against Jews. He's run these very anti-Semitic poster campaigns featuring George Soros and actually now Soros's son. Um, you know, and he and he used, you know, we are preserving Hungarian traditional values against whatever you want to call it, globalism or the elites or the Jews or the Muslims. Um, and and that's that's how he talks about what he's doing. You know, in reality, that's a kind of cover for this um, this this quite profound, you know, corruption. That's very similar to to Putin's own tactics. So Putin has a similar way of justifying what he does as the defense of traditional society. Um, whereas in practice, he's a kleptocrat and, you know, he's he presides over, you know, kind of regime of thieves who spend all their time stealing. You know, it doesn't seem very much like a you know traditional Christian society to me. But but they, but they share that quality. They share that way of doing politics. And I think this is also something that Carlson and other Republicans admire. You know, they would they would also like to you know, convince Americans that what they're interested in is defending traditional society, whereas, in fact, you know, what they'd like to do is create, you know, corrupt deals so that their sons-in-laws can make a lot of money, or them. In your book, uh, Twilight of Democracy, the seductive lure of authoritarianism, you talk about the lure, the how elites uh, gather to some extent, or some of them do anyway, around prospective uh, authoritarians and is that an example? Is this an example of that? And is Trump himself an example of an authoritarian who um, is, is attracting uh, elites who uh, otherwise yeah. would be somewhere else? Yeah, no, no. I mean, tr- I mean, Trump is a kind of um, magnet for yeah. people who see him as a vehicle to something. I mean, to power or to money or to you know, he's. Uh, you know, and, he, and he's he would allow people who would not normally get government jobs because they wouldn't fulfill the requirements or they wouldn't be considered you know appropriate. Um, you know, wouldn't ordinarily become I don't know secretary of state or chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, and there, and he's they, people see him as a way to um, you know uh, get ahead. Uh, you know, in a following a different path. And so he's very appealing to, I mean, Mike Flynn is a classic kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, it's not clear how mentally healthy he is, but anyway, some, someone who's very conspiratorial, who, um, you know, couldn't stay in the army any longer because he, you know, his, his views were so crazy. Um, he sees Trump as a kind of path to power and it's done from the beginning. Let me go to the uh, questions from the uh, audience, because they, they're always interesting and always good, and I always promise to do it, and uh, uh, here's an opportunity. Uh, Robert wants to know, uh, you have predicted, he says, uh, that Trump will abandon NATO and that uh, that would end our commitment to the European alliance. Can Trump do that unilaterally, he wants to know? Or, or could, obviously, this would depend on Trump being elected president. Uh, or does he need a vote of the Congress in order to accomplish it? So he does not need a vote of Congress. Um, this, the treaties are ratified by the Senate, but there's but there's nothing, no ratification process for leaving a treaty. Um, this, the important thing to know about understand about NATO also is that you know obviously if Trump started saying once he, if he were elected president if he started saying I will leave NATO there would be an enormous outcry and there would be political pushback and it would come from the Senate and from probably the military and from all kinds, you know, former Republican leaders of all kinds. But 
the point about NATO is that it's, although it's a legal document, it's a very, um, it also depends on a kind of psychological perception. So the NATO treaty just says if one country is attacked, then all the others, you know, who are who are members of the alliance, then the others are obligated to come to their defense or have to have to consider coming to their defense. It doesn't say what they have to do. It doesn't obligate anyone to do anything in particular. But 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 the point about the about this this famous clause, this is Article Five, is that um, is that it gives the the well the Russians the you know the it gives them something to be afraid of so there's this idea of collective defense you know if you attack poland america will intervene if you attack you know finland you know germany and sweden and um you know and sorry sweden's not in nato yet but you know germany and france and and the us will 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 defend them um and so it, it creates this you know impression and and that's what creates deterrence so why doesn't putin just attack poland i mean all those weapons are going into ukraine coming through Poland, the reason he hasn't is because he doesn't want to go to war with NATO. Once Trump says, I don't believe in NATO and I will not come to anyone's aid, then the, you know, the psychological effect of the NATO treaty is gone. So it doesn't matter what the Senate says. It doesn't matter what, you know, who else, you know, what other political pushback there is. It will, it will be gone because if Trump is the, you know, commander in chief, he's the president of the United States, he's not going to come and help, you know, when Poland is, Poland's airports and and you know train stations are bombed then why shouldn't Russia do it you know so so that so that so the, the point of the article I wrote for the most recent issue of the Atlantic yeah. um, is is that you know that that actually ending NATO ending the promise of collective security is much easier than people think I mean all he really has to do is convincingly say I will not help any of these European countries and I don't believe in NATO and then that's it you know, then it's then it's not a um, it's it doesn't scare anybody anymore. John has a question, and maybe it's the fact that it comes from the fact that the president said today that even though he hasn't gotten what he needs from the Congress yet, he was able to send send some a relatively minor amount of aid to uh, Ukraine. But he says this: given the House Republican obstinacy, does Biden have some sort of lend lease type option to supply Ukraine, or does that also require legislation again uh, sounds like he knows about world war ii yeah no i think there there are there are ways to get some things to ukraine without legislation i mean i think the purpose of this bill was also to send not just weapons but also um to help with ukraine's you know f- financial balance there, there it's it's not just weapons this this particular package um and i think that as i understand it that does need um you know spending that you know spending the money that money does require a congressional decision. I mean, Biden has something called drawdown authority, which he has been using, and he has been taking weapons out of storage. I mean, by the way, I mean a lot of what we've sent to Ukraine is stuff that was going to be, you know, eventually was going to have to be destroyed. I mean, it's you know very old ammunition and old artillery, and um, you know it's it isn't it isn't stuff that was made just for this purpose. And we are now building more ammunition, and the Europeans are beginning to step up and make more weapons too. But a lot of it was, I mean, emptying the warehouses in Nevada. Or, you know, or wherever they are, yeah. um, so, you know, um, and he has had some ability to do that. Uh, Jerome wants to know, I'm as concerned as you are about Putin, he says, but uh, your initial remarks sound like the domino theory that was advanced by the Americans prior to the catastrophic failure of our assault on Vietnam. He says no dominoes fell after the fall of Vietnam. So how is it different? 
think we live in a really different world. Um, we live in a world in which, um, as I said, Russia and China and Iran, who are the main mo three most important, but also Venezuela and also North Korea and also uh, a handful of other countries are now working in tandem. We are not a superpower anymore. We are not, um, uh, we are, you know, sorry, we are a superpower, but we are, um, we are up against much more, it's a much more complicated world um, in which we don't have, um, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, the battle is not only in Ukraine. So, so it's, you know, it's not that if Ukraine falls, then I don't know, Moldova falls and Poland falls. That's not just, that's, it's not, it's not just the, the that would be the domino theory. <clears throat> it's that if Ukraine falls, then the, you know, the myth and the, um, the power of the collective West disappears. Um, and then you have, as I said, the possibility that, um, you know, ch uh, China will invade Taiwan, which it's wanted to do for a long time. Why is that? Why do you make that? Others have made that point as well. Why is it so likely that China will be more likely to invade Taiwan if things don't go well in Ukraine? Because, because if things don't go well in Ukraine, that means that there will not be any Western aid for Taiwan. And so, uh. you know, there will not be a you know, that there will not be a reliable Western, uh, you know, and also remember, we're fighting Russia, not just militarily, but also um, financially, you know, we've used sanctions, we've used economic weapons, you know, if none of those things, because one of the, and that's one of the things China is worried about, you know, that if it were to invade Taiwan, that there would be all kinds of economic repercussions, you know, and, and, and that actually could be a reason why they won't do it now, because they're having some economic trouble right now. Um, but if they see that Russia can outlast the economic repercussions, that the sanctions don't work, um, that um, all of those, all that language about, you know, human rights and, you know, Geneva Conventions and laws on war and, you know, none of that works. Um, if they then see that you can, with impunity, occupy, um, you know, territory that is not, you know, uh, occupy foreign territory, you can commit massive human rights abuse there. You can, you know, lock up thousands of people. You can, um, you know, randomly bomb civilian schools and hospitals, and there's no price to be paid. If they see that that happens, then, you know, then, you know, what's to stop them from, from invading Taiwan? Here's uh, Eric uh, from Los Angeles. He says, uh, many Republicans express concern for the lack of tracking the U.S. money going to Ukraine. I believe the speaker, uh, Mike Johnson, has made that point. Uh, and uh, some of the money is going to, they say some of the money is going to Ukrainian companies that are doing badly. Uh, do you think these are valid concerns? Interesting question, given that uh, Ukraine was a pretty corrupt co country uh, relatively recently. Yeah, I mean, I think our country is pretty corrupt too now, um, but <laughs> it's another, um, it's, it's maybe a separate issue. So yeah. there is no money that's going to Ukraine that's not tracked. Um, most of, as I said, 80% of what's going to Ukraine is not money. I mean, it's money, but the money is spent here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, so almost all of it is weapons. And, you know, and we do track the weapons and the weapons are not, you know, being sold. They're not appearing in other wars. They're not, you know, drifting away from the conflict zone. They aren't being, you know, privatized in some way. The weapons are being used. So the vast bulk of what we're sending them is that, you know, and, and, 
The other piece of what we're sending them is is direct. Some of it is direct budget aid, which goes into you know the Ukrainian central bank, which then uses it to pay pensions, you know, or soldiers' salaries, or you know whatever. Um, and and that's also money that we're tracking. I mean, that's not money that disappears into some you know weird company. We are not sending money to Ukrainian companies to do what they want with it. You know, or letting them. I mean, maybe there's some exceptional case like that, but it's not. It's not what the vast bulk of the money is doing. Uh, Paul wants to know if you can comment on the $886 billion defense bill that was passed 87 to 13 today in the U.S. Senate. I don't know about that. Uh, this is the National Defense Authorization Act. Oh, it's the, oh okay, okay. As far as I, as far as I, sorry, I haven't, I didn't, I didn't look at this carefully today because I was yeah. something else, but um, I know that the, you know, you know, one of the other ways in which Biden was hoping to get aid to Ukraine was through that bill. And it may be that that's, you know, going to be a counter. Um, that's going to be a counter, you know, another possibility. And that, there was an argument again on the I heard an art there. I just caught a whiff of a, a House argument about that bill as well. So, it, I mean, the, 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 the trouble is quite a, there. There are a lot of measures that could pass the Senate um, can't pass the House, not because they couldn't find a majority in the House, but because the Speaker won't put them up for a vote. And I think there's some fear about that bill as well. The structure of our government has been getting in the way of, of a lot of things. Uh, Steve wants to know, can can Ukraine win if it doesn't actually attack Russia itself? He says, I realize we don't want to expand the war, but still, he says, dot, dot, dot. So Ukraine has attacked Russia. Um, they've attacked you know, both both just across the border, and they've also they have attacked Moscow with drones. Um, there is also quite an extensive sabotage program. I don't know if, if you follow this, you know, on social media, you could you know periodically factories in weird parts of Russia blow up, um, and that's thought to be mostly the Ukrainians, although it may also be some Russian opposition. So, um, so there is a. It's, it's not it's not as if they don't, you know, ever hit Russia at all. And they do. They have hit Russian targets also with longer range, you know, with drones and so on. Um, you know, I don't think they need, you know, obviously they don't need to, you know, attack Russia, occupy Russia, you know, occupy Moscow in order to win the war. You know, the war is over when the Russians leave, you know, when they stop fighting. And that can happen for a lot of different reasons. It can happen because of a Ukrainian military success. It can happen because the Russians are no longer able to produce, you know, the explosives or gunpowder that they need to keep their, you know, their arsenals going, uh, which is, you know, possibly one weakness that they have. It can happen because they are no longer economically able to fight the war. It can happen because they don't have enough soldiers to fight the war. In other words, there are, you know, there may be other ways that we can pressure Russia in addition to, um, you know, in addition to offering military aid for Ukraine. And some of those have worked. I mean, we think that the Russian army is, um, you know, already, well, certainly the Russian defense industry is already um, producing less. The Russians have less ammunition now than they did a year ago. Um, they have, you know, the, you know, their, their, their arsenal of weapons has run low. Um, you know, the majority of what they had before the war is already gone. I mean, in fact, already with something like, I think it's 4% of the U.S. defense budget, we've already destroyed something like 60% of the Russian army. So, you know, it's a bargain. <laughs> um, but but the, the, as I said, there are different ways to make sure that the war ends or to end, to convince Putin to stop fighting. 
And, you know, we should be pushing in all those directions, you know, doing all those different things. You mentioned uh, Russian political opposition being responsible possibly for the blowing up of factories. Uh, what about Alexei Navalny? Navalny, he seems to have uh, disappeared. His family can't find him. Uh, he's uh, we, uh, nor can his lawyers. Uh, do you have any insights as to what might have happened to him? So I talked to yesterday actually to somebody who is very close to him, um, who told me that he's not in the penal colony where he was before in the right. prison. Um, and they think they don't know where he is right now, but they think he's been taken away from Moscow. You know, he's he's he was he was in a prison near Moscow. Then he was a little bit farther away. But they think he's now in Siberia or somewhere in the Far East. Um, and probably the reason for this is that I mean, I know it sounds insane, you know, but there is a Russian election coming in the spring and we know who the candidate is and we know that he will win. Um, you know, Putin will win the election. But he seems to be nervous about Navalny and Navalny's impact on the national conversation in the run-up to elections. Um, you know, Navalny is still um, the one person who mounted a plausible, wide, you know, um, large-scale national campaign against yeah. Putin and had a lot of success doing it. And he's still the he's really the only person who ever did. And I think even Navalny in prison still scares Putin. Uh, several people have asked this. Uh, can Biden, Biden without uh, Congress, uh, give those billions of dollars of seized Russian assets to Ukraine? So this is a really interesting, um, interesting idea, and lots and lots of people are pushing for it. So yes, there are these seized Russian, you know, financial assets that are in, you know, American and Western banks. Um, there is an argument about the legality of doing that. And about whether it sets a precedent, you know, um, you know, if we seize their assets and they can seize our assets, kind of thing, you know. So there is a there is some reluctance on the part of, um, you know, the international banking community and central bankers to do this. Um, I think that pressure is going to is is rising um, to do this. I mean, it, I think I should also say there was another idea, which is that it's part of. You know, what levers do we have on Russia? You know, what 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 can we you know, what impact can we have on them? And I think the money, the frozen money was one of the levers. You know, we have this money. If you end the war, we'll give it back. You know, um, but I mean, increasingly, there is a lot of pressure to do that. Um, I think, you know, I'm very in favor of it. I also like it because, um, um, you know, it would in a, in a way it would solve the problem of reparations. I mean, because, you know, what the Russians have done to Ukraine is not only, you know, you know, the enormous economic damage, you know, the enormous, you know, human costs, um, they need to begin paying back for that. And, you know, if they're not going to do it voluntarily, then one way to do that is to use their assets um, to help Ukraine. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that did happen soon. I know that there is in the you know, this is not my area of expertise. I know there's a big pushback in the financial world against doing this on the grounds that it would set back. But but I think, you know, I hope that will be overcome. Uh, you mentioned the uh, loss of so many Russian soldiers. Uh, here's a combined question from Alan and Richard and Richard Allen Weissman. Uh, they want to know how has Russian how have loss, Russian losses of men and military equipment impacted Putin's ability to wage war? What is the status of public resistance to the war uh, on the Russian street? 
So there, so it's important to understand that there isn't really a Russian street. Gonna, you, know, you know, there isn't a body of popular public opinion. You know, Russians don't see any political choices. They see Putin and there's nothing else. You know, so there isn't, it isn't like they're, I mean, except Navalny and they've done their best to eliminate him. And, and because they don't see that, they don't, most of them don't see the point in protest. You know, why would you protest for what, you know, to get what, you know, to, um, you know, there's a, there's a very <clears throat> profound streak of nihilism, even in the kind of propaganda that Putin does, you know, he does this kind of, they do this firehood of falsehoods, you know, fire hose of falsehoods, excuse me, um, uh, which, you know, they, they put out lies all the time, changing constantly, you know, um, giving different view, you know, and, and what, what and one of the impacts of that on the public has been that people become apathetic. You know, they say, it's also confusing. Who knows what's true? I don't want to have anything to do with public life. I'm retreating. Um, and so one of the interesting things about the war is that although it's true, there is very little popular protest. There's also very little enthusiasm. You don't see people signing up to fight. You don't see people joining war rallies voluntarily. Um, so, so it's it's a very very passive society right now. I mean, the more interesting question is when the, you know, I don't know the top ten thousand. I mean, when does the Russian elite begin to say this is enough? Um, we know that some of them do. I mean, I mean the 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 the, the Prigozhin event, the um, Yevgeny Prigozhin's the, the 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 mercenary who marched on Moscow. That was evidence of that. You know, some of what he was saying was were things that you can hear other you know other people in the security community saying. Um, you, you know, there is a, you know, there are, <clears throat> there are business people and there are, you know, people who've left the country there, you know, and there is a, there is a, there is a, you know, it's not a popular war. It's not a, it's, you know, it's not a happy situation. Um, it's just that, as I said, I just don't think people see what protest would do, or at least not right now. Here's another question asked by several people, and it has to do with Hungary, which is now pro-Putin. Uh, uh, I think you indicated that he's moving in that direction, at least. Orban is. No, he's uh, very pro-Putin. Yeah. Very okay. So should should uh, uh, Hungary be booted from NATO, which was founded according to some of our audience members uh, to protect Europe from Russia? Um, it, yes. I mean, it's funny. I just also was talking to a senior American diplomat about that, too. I mean, I think it gets discussed periodically whether Hungary should be excluded from NATO. Um, I think that right still for the moment, the feeling is that that would give Putin a kind of victory, you know, that that would look like splintering of the West or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the moment, they're, you know, they don't want to do that. Um but we could, you know, we could get to that. I mean, I think it might actually be quite effective to kick him out of NATO because um, that would, among other things, it would be very unpopular in Hungary. I mean, most Hungarians want to be in NATO, just like they mostly want to be in the European Union, despite Orban's mm-hmm. propaganda. Uh, Carol wants to know: Would you, uh, how would you assess the effects of Europe's cutting off increasing amounts of natural gas from Russia? Is that significant enough to cause changes on the battlefield? You mean you? Sorry, Europe. Europe not buying Russian gas. I, I, yeah, I think that's what that means. Right. So they haven't bought Russia. I mean, they stopped buying Russian gas. I mean, not everybody. Well, no. well, well, uh, yeah, at the at the beginning of the war, yeah. some some there are still some gas contracts going, but 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 a, a lot of it was um, was stopped. I mean, and the the main impact of that is that Russia has less money. 
I mean, gas pipelines, unlike, you know, oil is fungible and, you know, you can sell it everywhere, but gas to, to transfer gas, you have to have pipelines. And that extensive network of pipelines that went from Russia to Europe can't be repeated so easily. You know, you can't just build them overnight and start selling somewhere else, you know, so it just means that Russian gas production went down. Susan wants to know, is Ukraine going to run out of people to fight this war? They've lost a lot of people as well. They have lost a lot of people. I mean, they're, they have they have still not gone to a kind of full-scale mobilization. Um, you know, there's still a lot of, you know, younger Ukrainians who've not been in the army. Um, they haven't, they haven't, you know, it's, this society is not militarized in that sense. Um, we could probably, we could get to that um, next year, probably. Um, and yeah, that is one of, the, that's one of the other reasons why it would be so important for the war to end faster rather than to drag on indefinitely. We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, would you like to make any final uh, comments? Is there any way you could be optimistic or leave us with a uh, <laughs> a uh, positive I mean, I, sense you, of history? You know, the U- Ukrainians are still fighting. They are not going to stop fighting. Um, I, you know, I think this week the Europeans will, um, you know, will announce their package of aid that I think will go through. Um, I mean, this is a personal note because my husband is involved, but there's a new Polish government, which is uh, its main security priority is going to be rallying Europe to help Ukraine. Um, and so there's some hope that, you know, the the the, re- the, the rebirth of the European defense industry, um, not just it's not just about def- straight defense, but that Europe's kind of, you know, s- strategic and security um arms will grow stronger. Um, and there's a, and that, you know, that's, that's the main program of the, of this new government. And I'm hoping that could have an impact if not immediately, then in like in the medium term. That's interesting because the uh, growth of the law and, and taking power of the law and order power in uh, Poland was one of the things you used in your book as an example of uh, how democracies can become authoritarian, but now it's going back the other way. It has. So this was a this was like the Hungarian government. The this was a ruling party that ran Poland from 2015 until two months ago. Well, until today, really. I mean, um, and it it had it, they also had a program of state capture. You know, capturing the business community, capturing the media, capturing the judicial system. You know, step by step by step. And they 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 really tried. You know, that was their their idea was to create a one party state in which they could never lose. Um, and they were surprised by the result of the election, which was in October. Um, and mostly they were surprised because it, there was an enormous turnout. We had a 74% voting turnout, which is higher than ever before in history. In cities, it was 85%. In one neighborhood, a friend of mine lives in a so it was 91%. Um, there was an enormous turnout. Very lot of young people voted, um, especially young women who hadn't voted before. And they were, and they lost and it took them a long time to hand over power. And they, you know, they constant, they legally extended it out as long as possible. But I mean, literally today, um, the new government was sworn in. Thank you so much. Ann Applebaum, it has been wonderful to hear from you. Please promise to come back and talk to us again on America at a Crossroads. Uh, whoever interviews you, we would love to have you. And uh, it's been delight- delightful to have you today. Thank you so much and have a lovely evening. Okay, same to you. And same to all of you in the audience as well. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Have a wonderful night and uh, stay safe, be well, and join us again next week.